All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 45, for December 2022. Stogies, Coffin Nails, and Spittoons, Tobacconists of Laurel Hill. East is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and it remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. Less than a century ago, more than 7 billion cigars were being smoked in the United States every year, and Philadelphia was the capital of cigar making. Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are the final resting places of several men who made their millions in the tobacco industry. Today's podcast talks about two of them, as well as telling you the story of a tragedy involving young immigrant female cigar makers in South Philadelphia, and a legal battle over a dead tobacconist millions that reminds you why you really need to have a will. Enjoy these stories. On All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, Stogies, Coffin Nails, and Spittoons, Tobacconists of Laurel Hill. It's probably been 30 years since I smoked a cigar or a cigarette, but I grew up in the 1950s and 60s with parents who smoked so it was easy for me to adopt the habit when I was drafted in 1966, especially when cigarettes were just a couple of bucks per carton at the PX, and we would get free cigarettes in our K-rations in Vietnam. When my wife and I did quit in the early 1990s, I told her, almost jokingly, if it's still legal, maybe we can start again when I turn 75. Well, I turned 75 in September, and... Neither of us has expressed a desire to start again. A couple of weeks ago, I was seeing a play at the Drake Theater in Center City. I stopped into a dive bar on 15th Street where I knew I could get a couple of hot dogs and a beer for just a few dollars. 
I also knew from prior experience that it was one of the few places in the city that allowed smoking, but I was prepared to face it. I was nursing my beer after the hot dogs, and someone sat next to me at the bar, and he lit up a cigar. I broke the ice. I said, I'll bet you're rewarding yourself after a long day at work. I was right. After every workday, he headed to McGlinchey's for a beer and a single cigar. But then I smelled like smoke for the rest of the evening. When I started researching this podcast about Philadelphia's tobacconists, I was surprised to find that for many years we were the cigar manufacturing capital of the United States. In the 1890s, there were more than 900 cigar makers in the Quaker City. And you could purchase your favorite at any corner newsstand, barbershop, tavern, or pharmacy. Of course, everyone knows about Phillies. They were made immortal in the 1942 Edward Hopper painting, Nighthawks. Three people sitting at a city diner at night with the sign above the picture window advertising the most popular cigar in the United States at the time, Philadelphia Handmade, better known as Phillies. They were made by the Bayek brothers since 1911. Phillies are still sold in sizes Black Max, Cheroot, Cigarillo, Mexicali Slim, Mini Blunt, Panatella Perfecto, Sweet Tip Titan, Phillies Finest, and of course the legendary Phillies Blunts in more than a dozen flavors. At the peak of popularity, the so-called Golden Age of Cigars starting around 1880, there were 250,000 cigar factories in the United States, which made about 2 million brands. You did not mishear me. I said 2 million brands. And in 1896, the world consumption of cigars was 400 billion, with 7 billion smoked in the United States. U.S. consumption of tobacco products was about five pounds for every man, woman, and child in the country. A French diplomat named Jean Nicot brought tobacco with him from Portugal, where he was serving as ambassador. The proper name of Nicotia Tobacum and the chemical nicotine were named in his honor. Whether you have ever smoked or not, you have nicotinic receptors in your body. They are part of the cholinergic system in both the central and peripheral nervous systems. In the Americas, tobacco use dates to pre-Columbia times. The first shop to make what we now call a cigar was in Cuba in 1542. The workers were known as tabaqueros. The word cigar first appeared in England around 1730. Tobacco was one of the crops that drew Europeans to the New World and a major driving factor in the trade of enslaved people. Tobacco started to gain popularity in the United States after the Revolutionary War. A man named John Hancart built a grist mill to make powdered tobacco, or snuff, in 1794 in Germantown. Two German immigrants, the Frischmuth brothers, came up with a sweet-scented smoking tobacco in 1810 and pipe smoking started to become popular. The Frischmuth descendants are interred at both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. Smoking became portable in 1827 with the invention of the friction match in England. 
And when someone added phosphorus in 1832, you could strike a match on any rough surface to light your smoke. By 1840, Americans were smoking 80 million Cuban cigars per year. Many of them were what were called bintus. That is, they were made in the United States, then they had been to Cuba before being imported back. Cuban cigar just means that the tobacco is Cuban in origin, not necessarily that the product was made there. During the American Civil War, cigars were the first product to have a federally mandated consumer size package and factories then charged by the box. Another industry was born, making cigar boxes. U.S. consumption at this time was only 26 cigars per person per year. And at the end of that war, in 1865, the first cigarette factory opened in New York City. By 1880, a tobacco tax accounted for one-third of all federal revenue. 50% from smoking and chewing tobacco, 40% from cigars, 8% for snuff, and less than 2% for cigarettes. But, 1881, a cigarette rolling machine had been invented, and it could turn out 120,000 per day. That was as many as 40 hand rollers. American Tobacco Company, started by G.B. Duke in 1889, grew by 1900 to control 90% of cigarettes, 80% of snuff, 62% of plug tobacco, and 60% of smoking tobacco. It was cigar workers who were leaders in the 19th century labor movement in America. Remember that American Federation of Labor, AFL leader Samuel Gompers, started as a cigar maker. Gompers has a great school named for him near St. Joseph University. Growing and curing tobacco took some time to master. Allowing tobacco leaves to cure for 25 to 45 days in a slow fermentation process reduced the sugar and water content. You had to inspect the leaves frequently to be sure they were not starting to rot. The tobacco was then separated into what would be used for filler with the best leaves used for wrapping the final product. Hand rolling a cigar was a skill that took some people years to master, and the best cigars were always totalente a mano, completely done by hand. Cigars are any size from the cigarette-like cigarillos, 8 centimeters long, to the impressive 23 centimeter Gran Coronas, with many, many sizes in between. Most were perfect cylinders, but variations called figurados were also made. Everything from cheroots with both ends open to perfectos, which had narrow ends but bulged in the middle. And the ever popular stogie was made by the Conestoga Cigar Company of Pennsylvania. A good hand roller could turn out somewhere between 130 and 260 cigars a day at their bench. Almost all the men grabbed two or three for themselves as a bonus, as the work was tedious and the pay was small, usually 15 to $30 per week. In most shops, it was considered normal behavior, but cigar manufacturers got wise and they started hiring women to do the work instead of men. For one thing, women didn't drink, and they were cheaper to hire at $5 to $15 per week. 
Plus, they were more reliable, they were more easily controlled, and for the most part, they did not join unions, at least not at the beginning. And unlike men, they did not take two or three smokes for themselves at the end of the workday. Although many of the women with boyfriends or family members who smoked managed to sneak a few away in their voluminous dresses. By 1905, the U.S. population had doubled in the 40 years since the Civil War, and cigar consumption had gone up sevenfold. Every man, woman, and child in the country smoked an annual average of 78 cigars and 108 cigarettes, chewed two and a half pounds of chaw, smoked one and three quarter pounds in a pipe, and dipped a third of a pound of snuff. And by then, there were about 350,000 trade names for cigars and about 80,000 cigar makers. It was around this time that mechanical cigar rollers started to take over the business. A machine could turn out 480 cigars per hour. That's eight each minute. Three good hand rollers might turn out 400 to 800 cigars per day, while four machines cranked out between 4,000 and 4,500. The cost of producing 1,000 cigars fell from $10 to $3.40. And then there was the so-called spit campaign. When a worker finished rolling a cigar, they licked the outside tobacco leaf to make the whole thing stay together. Producers of machine-rolled cigars pounced on this unsanitary practice and advertised how much more spitless their product was. As cigarettes got easier to make and more readily available, cigar use in the country started to drop off. From 8 billion in 1920 to only 4 billion in 1933. But the Great Depression probably had a lot to do with that. Today, I am going to talk about two famous cigar makers American born Otto Eisenlohr, interred at Laurel Hill West, Cuban born Juan Portuando, who's at Laurel Hill East. I will talk about Caleb Milne, who had a massive factory on Washington Avenue at 11th Street which he rented to a cigar company until a false fire alarm panicked its immigrant teenage girl workers into a stampede. And I will finish with the absolutely amazing story of Walter Garrett, who made a fortune in the snuff industry, and his widow, Henrietta, who died without a will, causing literally tens of thousands of people to try to figure out how they could get some of her millions. So, as my old drill sergeant used to say, light them if you got them, because that's where we're going today on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. Stogies, coffin nails, and spittoons. Don Juan Francisco Portuando was Cuban-born but he became a naturalized citizen of the United States when he moved to Philadelphia in 1847. Don Juan and his oldest son, Jose N. Portuando, were proprietors of the La Chivas Sugar Plantation near Santiago de Cuba, where his son, Juan Francisco Portuando, was born in 1848. When Don Juan returned to Cuba in 1855, he found that he was accused of treasonable thoughts towards the Spanish government. 
But since he was an American citizen, the government had to handle him with kid gloves. Rather than jail him on charges of treason, they moved to expel him from the island. His wife, Juan's mother, had strong Spanish affiliations and made efforts to have his American citizenship revoked, but she was unsuccessful. The government relented and allowed Don Juan to stay in his native land to oversee his sugar holdings. In 1861, at age 13, Juan Francisco Portuando started helping his father and brother on their sugar plantation, but he kept up his education in English and French from private tutors. As a naturalized U.S. citizen living in Cuba, his father refused to take up arms in the revolution against Spain. He remained strenuously apolitical for 20 years. During many of these years, former Union General Dan Sickles was serving as the United States ambassador to Spain. Catalan volunteers serving in Cuba had a hatred for everything American, and despite attempts at protection by the Cuban government, Don Juan Francisco Portuando was arrested on 10 February 1870, along with other foreigners. The charges? Quote, public rumor says that Don Juan Francisco Portuando is disloyal. One of the captives escaped during what he called a farce of a trial, at the end of which all of the charged were assassinated by gunfire at the base of a shrine erected in glory of the sanctified Virgin of Charity. The bodies of the murdered men were stripped of all clothing and left to fester in the sun for some time before they were allowed to be buried in a common trench, unmarked and unconsecrated. The full story of the Portuando assassination is in the 20 July 1879 edition of the Philadelphia Times on page 5. Don Juan's son, Juan Francisco Portuando, had come to the United States in 1868, provided with letters of introduction. He found no difficulty in securing a position with one of the thousands of cigar-making firms in Philadelphia. After rolling tobacco for about a year, he started his own business as a cigar broker. Soon, he started a small cigar-making shop. Small is defined as fewer than 10 rollers. A medium shop was up to 99 rollers. Portuando refused to compromise quality. He used only the top strains of tobacco, and he charged accordingly. He loved the business which he expanded continuously, and he succeeded in building up to one of the largest cigar-making establishments in the state. His cigar stands were all over the city. There was one in the Walnut Street Theater building. There was one in the Colonnade Hotel, and at 16th and Race, among others. And his brand was preferred by those who appreciated a finer smoke. Juan Portuando became a wealthy man, he purchased a beautiful farm at the Delaware Water Gap, where he and his wife always spent a portion of the summer before going south for the winter. He would rent the Kilpatrick Cottage at Aiken, South Carolina for the winter season. It had previously been used by Senator Edmonds of Vermont. Portuando would send his horses down from Philadelphia for the season. At the Chicago Columbian Exposition in 1892-1893, 
which celebrated the 400th anniversary of Columbus's New World explorations, which included bringing tobacco back to Europe, Juan Portuando was the only tobacconist to have a cigar-rolling factory in action. Portuando now had a national reputation, and his business kept growing. There is a full description of his setup at the World's Fair in the 10 June 1893 edition of the Philadelphia Times on page 5. His local factory was at the southwest corner of 17th and Locust Street. Portuando became sickly in his mid-40s, but I cannot determine what ailed him, although I suspect it was tuberculosis. He spent less and less time at the factory and more and more time at his farm and his South Carolina refuge. Toward the end of 1895, his health seemed to improve. And on the afternoon of 2 January 1896, he took a drive through Fairmount Park. The next day, he complained of not feeling well, and his physicians were summoned. When they arrived, he had considerable difficulty in breathing, which was followed by slight hemorrhage. After this attack, he again showed signs of improvement. On Monday afternoon, he sat up and conversed with his wife and physicians about the continuing trouble in Cuba. But Tuesday morning, his condition became worse, and he continued to sink until he died. He remained conscious during all the time and realized that he was dying. This was the same day that famed Philadelphia architect John Stewardson of the firm Copen Stewardson fell through the ice and drowned while ice skating on the Schuylkill. Stewardson is interred at Laurel Hill East in the south section. During his lifetime and after his death, the name Portuando on a cigar was so popular that at least a dozen other cigar companies tried to take advantage of it by naming their inferior product some variation on the name. Cortez Portuando, Garcia Portuando, Vicente Portuando, Portenda, Portego, Porto Rondo, etc., etc. These cheap knockoffs were usually machine-made, whereas the original 1F Portuando was always hand-stripped and rolled. A successful suit in 1906, ten years after his death, finally put an end to the imitators. Juan Portuando is buried on prime property. He's across the street from Kemble Mausoleum, downhill from the Widener Mausoleum, and practically in the backyard of the Elkins Mausoleum. Apparently, after an initial discussion about a mausoleum, Bertuando's wife settled on the tasteful obelisk that marks his final resting place. His wife, Margaret, joined him in 1921. Indiana Governor Thomas Marshall served as vice president under Woodrow Wilson during both of his terms from 1913 to 1921. He is little remembered today except for a quip that he stage whispered to a clerk while they were listening to a particularly long-winded speech as he was presiding in the U.S. Senate. Senator Joseph Bristow of Kansas was giving a laundry list of what this country needs is this and what this country needs is that. Marshall said, 
What this country really needs is a good five-cent cigar. Nickel cigars were not uncommon in the early 20th century, but they were generally made from the lowest quality tobacco. One of the top sellers was named Cinco, literally meaning five, and they purportedly tasted as good as cigars which cost twice as much, although some wags called them Stinkos. They were made by a cigar company run by Otto Eisenlohr and his brothers. The patriarch, Wilhelm Otto Eisenlohr, who Americanized his name to William, was born in Württemberg, Germany in 1825, and he came to this country as a teenager. In 1850, he started making cigars in his basement at 137 South 10th Street. Two years later, he achieved U.S. citizenship. The business grew from this simple start, and by 1873, William Eisenlohr entered the leaf tobacco trade, and he handed the cigar business over to his oldest son, Otto Eisenlohr, who was 21. Otto's brothers, Louis, Charles, and Augustus followed into the family business as they reached the appropriate age. Now, at this time, most cigars were still made by hand. The cigar maker first gathered a sufficient number of the brittle filler leaves, broke them off to the right length, and shaped them in his left hand. Next, he rolled them up inside the coarse binder leaf, taking care to give the cigar its special shape and contour. Finally, he wound the thin, delicate wrapper leaf around the bunch and finished off the ends, closing one or both of them. It sometimes took years to master this technique, as each cigar had to duplicate the others in every respect, including size and weight. You can see some videos of master cigar makers on YouTube. Otto Eisenlohr learned the tobacco business from the ground up. He experimented to discover which tobacco blends would give the smoker greatest satisfaction, thus coming up with the Cinco. When word got out, the demand greatly outstripped the supply, and Otto had to expand. Otto used bonuses and gifts to keep his workers happy, and they stayed loyal to the business. At its height, Otto Eisenlohr and Brothers was producing 200 million cigars annually. Otto also knew the value of advertising, and there was no place in the United States where you could escape the yellow signs with the red Cinco printed on them. And he sold more than the five-cent Cinco's. The next most expensive was the Henrietta, which went for a dime. The top of the line Eisenlohr's cigar was the Tom Moore, which cost a whopping 20 cents. Eisenlohr opened factories in Bucks County and Lancaster County. As I noted before, Lancaster was the center of tobacco growing in the state, and tobacco was Lancaster County's biggest cash crop until nearly 2000. Between 1911 and 1920, the Eisenlohr brothers built a complex of five large buildings for the storing and processing of tobacco at North Water and West Liberty in Lancaster. A few years later, the Bayek Cigar Company added four more buildings. Bayek, founded by three brothers in Philadelphia in 1896, was the company that made the Phillies cigar brand. 
1990, this Eisenlor-Bayek Tobacco Historic District was listed in the National Register of Historic Places. By 1912, Otto Eisenlor and Brothers was one of the 10 largest cigar companies in the United States out of 20,000. These Big Ten accounted for 22.6% of cigar production in the country. In 1910-1911, Otto Eisenlohr had a mansion built at 3812 Pine Street, next door to the property of Samuel Fells, president of the Fells Naphtha Soap Company. It was done in the Beaux-Arts style. Gilded Age architect Horace Trumbauer designed the house for him. The 25-room, four-story, 14,000-square-foot Eisenlohr house now serves as home the president of the University of Pennsylvania. Many of the features of the home were inspired by Otto's wife Josephine, who had studied the Italian Renaissance in Italy. At the entrance, the floor is made of inlaid mosaic marble, and on the ground floor there are four Italian marble fireplaces. The walls are made of mahogany. When Josephine Eisenlord died at the age of 83, she left the property to Penn. The university acquired it in 1939. The School of Education, now known as the Graduate School of Education, was housed in Eisenlohr Hall from 1940 to 1966 until it relocated to its new building at 37th and Walnut. From the late 1960s through the 1970s, Eisenlohr Hall served as home to the Center for Urban Ethnography, Student Counseling Services, and the General Alumni Society and Alumni Relations Office. Eisenlohr Hall was then restored and renovated just in time for University President Sheldon Hackney to move in in 1981. Penn's current president, M. Elizabeth McGill, is the house's current occupant. At about the same time in 1911, Otto bought a plot worth $5,000 in the Woodlawn section of Laurel Hill West, and he had Trumbauer design him a mausoleum, which was finished in 1913 at a cost of $24,000. That's equivalent to about three-quarters of a million dollars today. This apparently happened when his younger brother, August, known to everyone as Gus, died in 1911 in his late 40s of heart and kidney disease. Gus had never married. The family patriarch, William, had died in 1887 and was initially interred at Monument Cemetery, but his remains were brought to the new mausoleum when it opened in 1913. When you visit, get up close to the door, and if the light is right, you can see a beautiful barefoot woman with her blonde hair in a bun who's wearing a flowing green and blue dress and looking toward the sun with her arms raised. It is a gorgeous piece of stained glass. The mausoleum is in need of repairs and a good cleaning, but the current endowment does not allow for that luxury. Otto Eisenlohr died in 1914 at age 62. His death certificate gives cause as myocardial dilatation with mitral regurgitation and pulmonary edema. In other words, an enlarged heart probably due to ischemia, which led to insufficiency of the mitral valve and an accumulation of fluid in the lungs. 
Josephine, or Josie, his wife, outlived him by a quarter century. Otto Eisenlohr and Brothers joined with Webster's Cigars when people's tastes changed from cigars to cigarettes in the 1920s. Cigar companies started to get desperate, and they put out advertising that inferred cigarettes were feminine, while cigars, well, they were masculine. Improvements in machinery and factories stimulated output. When air conditioning was introduced, it helped regulate the temperature and humidity of cigars and tobacco, and it cut down on spoilage. But inflation even caused the Cinco to raise its price to three for 20 cents. Eventually in the 1960s, Bayek Brothers bought Otto Eisenlohr and Brothers. Nowadays, the use of cigars has fallen, along with other forms of tobacco use. Among U.S. adults 18 or older, 3% report that they smoke cigars some days or every day. 6% of men, 1% of women. There is still a market for cigars to be handed out at the birth of a baby or graduations or promotions. But the habit of giving away cigars as prizes in throwing contests at fairgrounds has completely disappeared. That's where we got the phrase, close but no cigar. Cinco and Henrietta are no more. But occasionally a tin or a cigar box comes up for sale on eBay. And there are still hundreds of brands of cigars available around the world. Philly cigars are still available, but they're made by an American subsidiary of the British conglomerate Imperial Brands. Most moderately good cigars now go for about $3 each when they're sold in a pack of 10. Although you can still get a good old Philly blunt for about a dollar. Caleb Jones Milne was the son of Scottish immigrant David Milne, who was born in Aberdeen in 1787 and who died in Philadelphia in 1873. He's buried at Laurel Hill East, Section W, Lot 207. David's first wife, Helen Forbes Milne, gave him a son, James, and a daughter, Isabella, but she died in childbirth in 1834. David then married Beulah Thomas Parker Milne, 24 years his junior, and she gave him five more children, including Caleb Jones Milne in 1839. Eight members of the first and second Milne generations are interred in the Laurel Hill East plot. Caleb Jones Milne married Margareta Shea, and they had nine children, including Caleb Jones Milne Jr., 1861 to 1941. Caleb became a manufacturing magnet. His concerns included the Peerless Brick Company on Old York Road near Nice Town Lane. Peerless bricks were used in the construction of the Reading Terminal Market in 1893. He was also president of C.J. Milne & Sons at 1824 Lombard Street, a cotton goods manufactory. The family lived in a very ritzy neighborhood at 2030 Walnut Street, with John Wanamaker as a neighbor on one side, and James Elverson, owner and publisher of the Philadelphia Inquirer, on the other. As the 19th century wore down, Caleb saw value in having property in South Philadelphia, 
which was booming especially on the east side of Washington Avenue between 10th and 13th. The Philadelphia, Washington, and Baltimore Railroad had been located in the area since the 1850s and was especially prominent during the Civil War when many troops heading south had come through its terminals in Philadelphia. Currently, the building at 1201 Washington was occupied by chemists John and Frank Wyeth, whose company went on to become Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Curtis Publishing had a large building at 1101 Washington, and John Wanamaker had a clothing manufacturing plant at 1001 South Broad. That's the corner of Broad and Washington. From 1832 to 1894, the property at 10th and Washington had been occupied by the Machpelah Cemetery, named after the biblical burial site, the Cave of Machpelah, or the Tomb of the Patriarchs. In the 1890s, public health concerns had forced its relocation, and most of the 13,000 bodies were moved to Mount Moriah Cemetery in Philadelphia, except for 400 veterans who were moved with honors to the Philadelphia National Cemetery. Caleb Milne purchased this plot of land in 1895 for $68,500. That's more than $2 million in today's currency. Caleb hired the architects Edward M. Hales and Walter Francis Ballinger to design him a massive building on Washington Avenue. It stretched from 10th to 11th Street. Ballinger, who was interred at Westminster Cemetery next door to Laurel Hill West, died after a car crash in Chestnut Hill in 1924. His other works include the Victor Talking Machine Company building, better known as the Nipper Building in Camden, the first Campbell's Soup Company building, also in Camden, the Atwater Kent Company building at Wissahickon and Abbotsford, and the Bud Building at Hunting Park and Wissahickon. The block-long, five-story Milne building was completed in late 1896. C.J. Milne & Sons occupied the fifth floor. The first floor was rented by the U.S. Army as a quartermaster depot for the Schuylkill Arsenal. The second, third, and fourth floors were used as a cigar factory for the company Harburger and Honer. But in 1901, the American Cigar Company, which had been located at 1135 Washington, moved a couple of blocks to the Milne Building. In mid-May of 1900, more than 300 of the girls working as cigar rollers for Harburger and Honer went on strike for higher wages. On 14 May, nine persons aged 17 to 36 were arrested on charges of inciting and intimidating. As the 7 a.m. whistle blew, 50 girl pickets appeared at the main entrance of the factory. They protested their low wages, 250 to 450 weekly for bunching and stripping. They declared that in New York, the workers received a dollar per week more. Their requests were moderate and fair. 17 and a half cents per hundred bunches, which was even less than what the same firm was paying in New York City. The girls were working for the George W. Childs Cigar Company, named after the local newspaper publisher who also established the town of Wayne, Pennsylvania. Childs, who was interred in a mausoleum on Millionaire's Row at Laurel Hill East, will get his own podcast at some time in the future.
The lithographs in the Philadelphia Inquirer show the striking women gathering in their floor-length Victorian dresses and voluminous hats. When American Cigar moved in, they followed the trend in hiring young women as their cigar rollers. There was a 1901 law that stated no child under the age of 13 could be employed in a factory and that children aged 13 to 16 needed a certificate from a notary public stating that they could read and write English. But there were dishonest notaries in South Philadelphia who would provide a certificate for a small fee and a sworn statement that the child's father would register as a Republican when they obtained citizenship. This was all arranged through the auspices of State Senator George Augustus Vare, who's interred in a mausoleum in the Ashland section of Laurel Hill West. The American Cigar Company employed about a thousand workers in the building. Most of them worked in the rolling department on the fourth floor. There was a preponderance of Italian and Russian immigrants. Many of them were children, some as young as 11 years old, and many did not understand English. On 30 April 1902, the employees were finishing their morning's work just before the noon lunch whistle sounded. A teenage Crimean immigrant named Isidore Burks, who was a deaf mute, was waiting beside the fourth floor freight elevator shaft on the 11th Street side for a ball of twine to come down from the fifth floor. Exasperated at his wait time, he stuck his head over the gate into the shaft to see if it was coming. And of course, just then, the elevator arrived. It smacked his head, caused a large bloody scalp laceration. Isidore let out a shrill, strangled cry that stopped everyone in their tracks. A foreman saw what had happened. He called for an ambulance. But the boy kept up his howls as he staggered onto the work floor, covered in blood. His terrified co-workers also began to scream. Now the commotion carried over to the 10th Street side of the building and started to rile up the workers there. The foreman, Anton Lefkowitz, tried calming everybody down by saying very loudly, There is no fire. I repeat, there is no fire. But many of the girls who were close to the manager had a minimum understanding of English. The one word that they understood was fire. And the word fire spread across the workspace, and that's when the panic began. The Philadelphia Inquirer explained what happened next. Quote, Fourteen foremen rose with entreaties and commands of silence. Six hundred terrified women rose against them. The foremen were swept aside like saplings before a cyclone. Through the room, the girls and women, crazed with fear, rushed in a wild stampede. An immense firewall with a large double door in the center separates the two rooms that occupy the entire fourth floor. As the occupants of the west room crashed through this, they stampeded the entire floor. The main avenue of escape to most of the girls was the fire tower on 10th Street in the northeast corner of the building. Toward it, the crowd surged. 
Some far in the rear went to windows and the fire escapes on 11th Street. Many attempted to jump. Even if they had done so, they would no doubt have met a kindlier fate than that which awaited their companions who flooded toward the winding steps in the fire tower. Somebody closed the low partition door separating the main room from the entrance lobby. Frenzied women seized them and tore them from the hinges. The insane crowd, goaded by the cries of fire from the rear, pushed into the narrow winding stepped tower. The third floor was reached in comparative safety. Pushing, struggling, crying, praying, the maddened crowd even reached the landing between the third and second floors. Then one of the leaders fell. A dozen women fell on top of her. The mass of crazed humanity on the floor above, ignorant or heedless of the fallen ones, pushed on. A hundred fell over the first few. The force behind wedged them into the narrow brick wall corner until the under ones could not move. Prayers for deliverance were uttered by the dying. Angry cries for help and groans came from the maimed. But still the crowd from behind pushed on. Prostrate bodies three feet deep lined the flight of steps. The under ones crushed and suffocated, groaned and prayed in their helplessness. The ones above, with but the one thought of self-preservation, fought each other with the ferocity of tigers. Sharp nails tore clothing into shreds. Sharper teeth sank into each other's flesh. Even when the rescuers came, they were fought back by the fear-crazed women. The victim's shrieks and screams could be heard for blocks around and an alarm of fire was turned in. The first responders were a fireman from a nearby firehouse and two employees of the quartermaster department on the first floor. They encountered a seething mass of humanity jammed into the stairwell and they attempted to pull victims out. But the girls did not recognize that the men were there to save them and fought their attempt, biting and scratching their intended rescuers. It took 20 minutes to untangle the ball of frantic human beings jammed in the stairwell. Fire trucks arrived and managed to rescue some of the girls who'd crawled out onto fire escapes and window ledges. Two of the girls jumped from the fourth floor window, a distance of nearly 50 feet. One was killed instantly, the other seriously injured. As the victims in the stairwell were peeled apart, Many were unresponsive, and some were obviously dead. Most victims were transported to Pennsylvania Hospital. Others went to a nearby pharmacy for their cuts and bruises. The rector of the nearby St. Paul's Roman Catholic Church at 8th and Christian came to the scene and administered last rites, as well as comforting survivors. Families had frantically gathered on the streets surrounding the building, and could barely be contained by the police as they sought information about their loved ones. When the tumult died down and the victims could be identified, there were eight girls dead, ranging from age 12 to 22. Another victim, 15 years old, suffered from broken ribs and a punctured lung. She died a few months later in August. Incredibly, 
the foreman insisted that business go on as usual the next day, and believe it or not, about two-thirds of the employees showed up. Building owner Caleb Milne was found faultless. Inspectors later confirmed that the building met all existing fire codes and was safe. On 1 July 1912, Caleb Milne was spending his annual vacation in London when he was run down by a taxi cab on Coxpur Street near Trafalgar Square. He died at Charing Cross Hospital without regaining consciousness. His obituary mentioned that he was a member of the Rittenhouse and Art Clubs, the Union League, the Corinthian Yacht Club, and various other clubs. He was interred at Laurel Hill West, the River Section, Lot 27. None of the victims of the Cigar Company tragedy are interred at Laurel Hill. If you're a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill Cemetery, you probably heard me tell the story of his great-grandson, Caleb Milne IV, a failing actor who arranged his own kidnapping as a publicity stunt, a caper which did not amuse J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. In life, Caleb Milnes was surrounded by Wanamaker and Elverson. In death, he is close to Supreme Court Justice Robert Greer, Stephen Girard's nephew Jean-Auguste Girard, and other movers and shakers of 19th century Philadelphia. While their contributions were great, their stories do not match that of the original Caleb Milnes and the tragedy that occurred at the Milne Building on Washington Avenue in South Philadelphia in 1902. I am going to ask you a favor. Tell a friend about All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, if you like it. Even tell them if you don't like it, because they might like it if, if you don't. Also, if you think of it, if you're downloading from Apple Podcasts, Please leave a five-star and write a review. It helps boost the podcast in the algorithms. It really does. Get in touch with me if you like. I'm available through my email, joe at joelex.net. A reminder that Christmas is coming up. If you're listening at the end of November, early December, the gift shop might be the place for you to get something special for that taffophile on your list. Go to laurelhillphl.com slash support slash gift dash shop and you will see some wonderful little gadgets and toys and books that might make great stocking stuffers for friends. If they're a really close friend, get them a membership in the Friends of Laurel Hill. It is an organization that supports the cemetery. It helps pay for the landscaping, it helps pay for the upkeep, and you get discounts at the gift shop, you get members-only tours, and you even get two members-only podcasts when you belong to the Friends of Laurel Hill. So consider that for yourself, consider that for friends and relatives who might enjoy Laurel Hill. Things are slowing down a little bit in December. Um, on Friday the 2nd, there's a Winter Table Centerpiece Workshop, 10 o'clock in the morning, at Laurel Hill West, uh, the Horticulture Workshop. On the 10th, there's a Hot Spots and Storied Plots Tour at Laurel Hill East with Peter Howell as your guide. 
I am doing a virtual tour. It was initially listed for Wednesday the 7th. That has been changed. It will be Tuesday the 13th. It's called Is That a Snake? Serpent Symbolism in Laurel Hill. I have found more than 20 mausoleums and tombstones that have snakes on them. And I'm going to tell you about the people who were buried there. There's another Hot Spots tour on the 15th, which is Thursday at 10 a.m. Jim Hens is giving that one. And then one general tour at Laurel Hill West, Sacred Spaces and Storied Places. Sandy Grimwade is doing that on Saturday, December 17th. As usual, on New Year's Eve, December 31st, General Meade's birthday and General Meade's wedding anniversary. We will be having a General Meade's birthday celebration at Laurel Hill East. 12 o'clock, noon, RSVP is required because we will have some bubbly wine to drink at the General's graveside. You will see some reenactors. You will hear some military music from the Civil War. All in all, it's always a a fun place to be on New Year's Eve. Plus, you get some free cheap champagne. Anyway, that's some of the things that are coming up in December. We'll have a whole new list of activities for January with the next podcast. There's lots of really neat stuff that's going to be happening at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West in 2023. So I can't wait to tell you about it. Let's get back to the podcast and this is the piece de resistance. So far, I have talked mostly about cigars and the gradual transition to cigarettes. Now I want to shift gears. Have you ever heard of Ramon Panay? He was a Franciscan monk who accompanied Christopher Columbus on his second voyage to the New World. Brother Ramon wrote in his journal about a new use of tobacco that he noticed by the native dwellers. Not only did they smoke it, but they pulverized the leaf into a fine powder and they sniffed it up their nostrils as medicine, either by taking a pinch with their fingers or using a small straw. By the 1500s, the Dutch had named this new product snuff. And by 1610, snorting snuff was an elegant social practice in the court of Louis XIII. When its use sifted down to the lower classes, it was no longer fashionable among the upper classes. In England, snuff was used by poets, playwrights, and artists who gathered in the coffee houses. Frequently, its use caused people to sneeze, which brought an obligatory, God bless you, and that was often used as an icebreaker to start a conversation. In the New World, tobacco came just as much a part of the economy of the South as cotton, and just as with cotton, Africans were brought to these shores as enslaved laborers to work the fields. Perhaps the first North American to specialize in snuff was Peter Lorillard in 1760. Lorillard and his family stayed in the tobacco business until 2014, when his company was acquired by Reynolds American. People of all social classes, both male and female, used and became addicted to snuff, which could be easily concealed between the lower lip and gum or in a corner of the cheek, like a plug of chewing tobacco. But it was not meant to be chewed. 
The snuff user simply absorbed the nicotine through the mucous membrane and got enjoyment that way. There were even snuff pistols designed to eject a small pinch far back up the nasal passages. Snuff and tobacco plug use became so common that the United States Congress, taking after the British House of Commons, had snuff boxes installed in both the House and the Senate, and then they placed spittoons about to catch the expectorated excess saliva that was generated. If you visit the U.S. Capitol today, you will still see two brass spittoons on the floor of the Senate. There's one for the Democrats and one for the Republicans. And the snuff boxes, filled daily by Senate pages, still exist in the back of the hall, although it is unlikely that any current senator actually takes advantage of this perquisite. Before cigarettes took over the nicotine market in the 1920s, cigars and snuff ruled. By 1900, 18 million pounds of snuff were consumed in America. This increased to 37 million pounds in 1920, and it peaked at 40 million pounds in 1940. And the brand labeled Garrett Snuff was a top seller for more than a century. The Garrett family did not come to the New World with William Penn, but they followed shortly after. Patriarch John Garrett found a place which would be perfect for a mill along the Red Clay Creek near Wilmington, Delaware. By 1738, he had acquired 267 acres of prime farmland. He entered partnership with four other local landowners to build a grist mill that turned grain into flour. But the partnership lasted only a few years, and Garrett sold his shares back. He soon built mills of his own, and at his death in 1757, he bequeathed his holdings to his sons, John II and Thomas Garrett. When the Revolutionary War broke out, John II sided with the colonists as a captain in the 6th Delaware Militia. After the war, the grain business boomed, but stiff competition soon had him looking for other uses for his mills. He erected his first tobacco-grinding mill in 1782, and the Garrett family was now in the snuff business. It was the next generation of Levi and Horatio that grew snuff into the huge business it would become. Levi Garrett moved to Philadelphia. He opened a shop as a tobacconist. He later assumed care of the snuff mill, and business was booming. Levi handed the business off to his son, William, and then to William's sons, William Jr. and Walter. By then, there were three Philadelphia Garrett tobacco stores on South Front Street. The family lived at 824 Pine, and the Garretts owned other property at 730 and 732 Lombard Street. Garrett Snuff was the most popular brand in the country, and Walter Garrett, the great-great-grandson of the first John Garrett, was a very rich man. In 1871, he was 40 years old and a tall, erect, heavy-set specimen with a flowing mustache who wore a frock coat, starched collar, and a silk hat. He had never married and was considered a great catch by many a mainline matron looking for a partner for her daughter. It was a hobby 
Walter had become enamored with fire departments. He supported many volunteer fire companies with generous contributions. He had met another pyrophile, John Schaefer, and in the spring of 1872, Walter went from his home at 131 South 13th Street to pick up John at his home in Freed's Alley that was in the Tenderloin District. Out in front of the Schaefer home, Walter saw a pretty blue-eyed blonde scrubbing the front steps, and he felt his heart leap in his chest. He had just encountered John Schaefer's younger sister, Henrietta Edwardina Schaefer. Henrietta was 22, and she had never had a steady bow. Despite taking dancing classes, she was uncomfortable around men and self-conscious of her slight lisp. But despite his impressive bearing and an 18-year age difference, Henrietta welcomed Walter back when he asked permission to call again. Walter's sisters, Julia and Elizabeth, were appalled at Walter's attraction to this unsophisticated working-class girl who had never gone past the eighth grade. They pretended to be friendly, and they invited Henrietta for tea, but then they tried to embarrass her by talking about art, music, and their travels to Paris and Venice and London. This snobbery only forced Walter closer to Henrietta, and on 4 September 1872, Henrietta Schaefer became Mrs. Walter Garrett at St. Andrew's Lutheran Church, Broad and Arch Street. Walter bought his new bride a three-and-a-half-story red-brick house in a fashionable neighborhood, 404 South 9th Street. It is still there. He then bought the attached house next door at 402 South 9th so his wife's father, mother, and brother could be close by. And then he had a wall knocked down on the second floor so the Schaefer family could visit whenever they liked. Walter gave Henrietta the best of everything. He gave her a coach and horses, provided her with a coachman, a cook, a personal maid, and a downstairs maid. From their new home, Walter could walk to his front street office every day, entering under the large sign declaring W.E. Garrett and Sons. There was no doubt that Walter adored his young bride. Prior to marriage, he had made annual trips to Europe, but these stopped because Henrietta was afraid to cross the ocean. He ended his visits to the Academy of Music and the Music Hall for his beloved operas and concerts because Henrietta preferred sentimental music, which she played on the rosewood piano that he purchased for her. Once, shortly after their marriage, he took Henrietta on a pleasure trip to New York City. It was too big, too noisy, so they never returned. Henrietta's idea of a pleasant time was a weekend in Atlantic City, bathing in the surf, walking the boardwalk in the evening. So, in 1877, Walter bought three large lots on South Connecticut Avenue, within walking distance of the boardwalk, and he built her a ten-room summer cottage. Walter wanted to spend his every waking moment at Henrietta's side, and by the end of three years of marriage, he had reduced his time at work to once or twice monthly. Brother William took over the majority of office work. Walter and Henrietta's brother John stayed good friends, often answering the call of volunteer firemen, 
by donning their firemen's hats and boots and chasing after the engine. They both marched in volunteer fireman parades in Philadelphia and Atlantic City. Walter had found his ideal life, sharing it with a woman he loved desperately and her brother, who turned into his best friend. The age and social class disparities made no difference to him. His life was almost perfect. His one disappointment was that he and Henrietta did not have children. He had wanted a son to whom he could pass his successful business. They lived together in marital harmony for 23 years. In February 1895, a big blizzard struck the Delaware Valley, paralyzing travel with 15 to 20 foot snow drifts. The few telephone lines in town went down, telegraph poles snapped, and Walter Garrett was dying at his home on South 9th Street. He had earlier been diagnosed with Bright's disease, end-stage kidney disease, and he had dwindled away over the last three years. Henrietta was his loving nursemaid throughout the worst of the disease. She bathed and massaged him. She made him flannel nightgowns, applied hot poultices, fed him cereals prescribed by the medical specialists. But despite the best care available, Walter Garrett died on 17 February, 1895. He was 63 years old. After a simple service, he was interred in Section X, Lot 320 at Laurel Hill Cemetery, the Schaefer Plot. Walter's best friend and Henrietta's brother, John Schaefer, had purchased this plot on 20 November 1885 for $247.50, which he paid on that date. And when he died, Walter had completely cut himself off from the Garrett family. His grieving widow, Henrietta, was 46, and she would live another 35 years. She was also now a very rich woman. Walter had written a will in 1890, and he left nothing to chance. He did not name his sisters in this will. They were independently wealthy. His brother, William E. Garrett Jr., got Walter's full interest in W.E. Garrett and Sons, as well as his share of the family farm and the snuff mills. To his brother-in-law and best friend, John, he left his gold watch and a hundred certificates of railroad stock worth $1,000 each. He made other generous donations to Hahnemann Hospital, Pennsylvania Hospital, Children's Homeopathic Hospital. He finished the will with, I give, devise, and bequeath unto my dear wife, Henrietta Garrett, and her heirs, executors, and administrators, and assigns all the rest residue and remainder of my real estate and personal whatsoever and wheresoever situate for her own absolute use and disposal. Thus the shy blue-eyed girl with simple tastes became the sole owner of her husband's estate estimated to be worth six million dollars and virtually nobody knew about it yet. Walter also inserted another clause, and not having been blessed with any children, I desire at my death she shall make a will disposing of all her property so that she may know to whom it will descend. And at the same time, Walter wrote Henrietta a letter. It explained what bequests he had made 
And he said, I trust you will oblige me by making your will at once. Don't put it off. But leave your fortune to charitable institutions mentioned by name, as I would not like it if what I have worked long and hard to accumulate should be squandered by your and my sisters, cousins, and aunts and uncles. Leave all you want to John C. Schaefer, but do not let any scallywags get any if you can keep it by making a will and oblige your loving husband, Walter Garrett. Now, after Walter's death, it was out of the question for Henrietta to remarry. Walter had been the only man she had ever loved and would ever love. She refused to move from the house on South 9th Street and rejected any suggestions that she replace the furniture as it wore out or broke. She gave the maid's orders to never move any of the daguerreotypes from the walls where Walter had placed them. She and her mother and her brother lived quite comfortably. John hired an African-American household servant, a light-skinned girl named Carthage Churchwell, who took care of number 402. Henrietta kept her two servants and a coachman at 404. One day she and John were riding their horse car to Center City on business and were involved in a collision with a motorized truck. Nobody was injured, but Henrietta was badly shaken and she soon developed fears of even leaving the house. Henrietta's mother died of uremia in 1898. She had made money on the stock that Walter left her, and she bequeathed her $50,000 estate to her children, John and Henrietta. John became crippled with arthritis in old age. He died of pneumonia in October 1915. His will provided small sums to friends and cousins, but he too had invested wisely, and Henrietta received the remainder of his estate, about $300,000. Henrietta Garrett was now alone at age 66, except for her servants and her millions of dollars. After her brother died, she never again visited her family gravesite at Laurel Hill. In fact, she never again left the house on South 9th Street, except for one time to stand on the porch to see the colored lights on the roof of the newly opened Edison building at 130 South 9th Street, two and a half blocks away. The Atlantic City home was closed and shuttered. She had a financial manager. His name was Charles Starr, and he came to visit and talk three times weekly. She made Carthage Churchville her personal maid and hired two Irish girls as a cook and a housemaid. Eh, the three servants did not get along. They could go for weeks without speaking to each other. And when her last horse, Dora, died of old age, Henrietta gave her Scottish coachman the job of tending her ornate stoves and fireplaces. He would also serve as her medium of communication with the outside world as she refused to install a telephone. A local watchmaker named Frederick Schmid would come every Friday at 11 a.m. sharp to wind the six old-fashioned clocks that stood in the hall, parlor, and sitting room. If he was even a few minutes late, Henrietta would become upset and send the coachman to find him. Schmidt did this task for 15 years. In addition to refusing to install a telephone, 
Henrietta never installed electricity. The ornate gas chandeliers had been selected by her beloved Walter, and their removal would have profaned his memory. She never again rode in an automobile, which she hated. When the ancient copper tub in her dark bathroom corroded through, she made the plumber find a duplicate. Henrietta refused to consider a porcelain replacement. She spent hours entering insignificant household purchases into a ledger. Stamps, 25 cents. Toilet paper, 8 cents. Silk thread, 12 cents. Glue, 10 cents. If she saw that she could save a few pennies on a loaf of bread, she would send one of the servants several blocks away rather than buy from a neighborhood merchant. Her only visitors were two elderly cousins, Emma, Lilla Aurora, and Lilla's son, Frank Marcellus. Lilla died in 1920 at 80, Ella four years later at 84. Well, Henrietta and Frank Marcellus remained close. They sent each other Christmas and birthday cards. They shared small gifts and occasional holiday meals on 9th Street. And Henrietta reminded the servants that Frank Marcellus was her only living relative. On 15 November 1930, Henrietta finished the day by writing an item in her ledger, Ashman taking rubbish, 10 cents. She then went to the bedroom where she had slept for the last 58 years. At 5.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, 16 November 1930, Carthage Churchville went upstairs as usual to help her mistress to dress. Carthage was worried when Henrietta was not sitting on the bed as she always awoke before dawn. She struck a match to light the bedside lamp and then touched her mistress's face. It was white and cold. She put her ear to the chest. There was no heartbeat. Henrietta Schaefer Garrett had died sometime in the night. She was 81 years old. At the time of her death, Henrietta and her house servants had never varied from their daily wardrobe of high-necked, floor-length black Victorian dresses and high-button shoes. Charles Starr received the call from Henrietta's coachman from a public telephone. Mrs. Garrett has passed away. She instructed me that if anything happened to her, you should be the first to be notified. Starr's first thought was to make sure that Frank Marcellus was comfortable making funeral arrangements. His second thought was to find Henrietta's will and start it on its way through Philadelphia's Orphan's Court. He phoned a lawyer friend to come with him to be a witness while he searched for the will at her home. They were leaving the Ninth Street house with two large satchels of paper just as Frank arrived. A neighborhood doctor filled out a death certificate. Bringhurst Funeral Home was notified and arrived to embalm her body. Carthage combed her mistress's white hair for the last time, then dressed her in her best black silk dress. Henrietta was laid out for viewing in the parlor of the home where she had lived for 58 years and where her father, mother, brother, and husband had died before her. Black crepe on the door attracted a handful of neighbors who viewed the body, and there was a very brief mention in the obituary columns. It emphasized that she had married Walter Garrett almost 60 years earlier, but it gave no details about her own life. 
Neighbors knew Henrietta as a recluse who once had some money but who had probably not invested wisely and had been scraping by since her husband's death. They had no idea of what was about to happen. On 20 November 1930, Henrietta Garrett was laid to rest with family members at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section X, Lot 320. On her left ring finger, she wore her plain gold wedding band with the inside inscription, WG to HES, Sept 2, 1872. And now she was once again next to her beloved Walter. The nearest thing to a will that Charles Starr found was a handwritten letter dated June 2, 1921. It was addressed to him, and it laid out several bequests to friends, including to Starr's young daughters. The total amount to be distributed was $62,500. But Starr sat back flabbergasted, as he knew that the old woman's estate had been invested wisely, and it was now worth $17 million, which would now be the equivalent of more than $300 million. And this was in 1930, the heart of the Great Depression. Starr and the others managing the estate racked their brains. Distant cousin Frank Marcellus was the only apparent surviving relative, and he was not mentioned in the will. For the next four years, they discreetly searched for heirs, both in the United States and in Germany, but they were unsuccessful. Of course, they used Henrietta's estate to cover their expenses, and almost $3 million was eaten up by inheritance taxes, federal estate taxes, and property taxes, both in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. They finally had to make their findings public. In 1936, Orphan's Court appointed a special master to hear any and all claimants for the Garrett estate. His first legal battle was with the Garrett family, as there were literally hundreds of John Garrett's descendants spread around Pennsylvania, Delaware, Ohio, Virginia, and other parts of the country. But Walter had written an airtight legal and binding will that ignored his blood relatives in favor of his blue-eyed, lisping wife, the daughter of a German immigrant. The Garretts were dismissed without a cent. One of John's longtime friends, who had served as pallbearer at his funeral, testified that a few weeks after John's death in 1915, Henrietta told him that she had drawn up a will. And then another claimant claimed to have signed a handwritten will as a witness in 1924. But she stated that the other witness was Henrietta's servant, Carthage Churchville. Carthage had died only a year or so after Henrietta and, of course, could not corroborate that story. So now there were two witnesses claiming that two wills existed. The 402 and 404 houses had been shuttered for seven years. A crew of deputies and lawyers under orders from the special master gained access to the house, and they tore it apart looking for the will. They lifted rugs. They poked into the gas chandeliers and candelabras. They took down the 84 daguerreotypes that Walter had hung on the walls, and they pried off their backs. 
They stuck pins into horsehair upholstery, tapped the walls, tore up floorboards, removed window sills, and probed the chimney flues. They leafed through the books in both houses. They searched all the clocks, which had been silent for years. They even ripped open the linings of Walter and John's fire company hats, and nothing resembling a will could be found. But oddly, they found a pair of wrinkled, dusty baby shoes in the attic under the eaves. A custodian was appointed by the master and took over the security of the houses and their contents. Shockingly, he found a small safe that was hiding in plain sight in Henrietta's bathroom next to her copper bathtub and covered with a white cloth. The early investigators had apparently assumed that this was just a washstand. So on 15 March 1937, two safe experts, i.e. safe crackers, opened it. They found an abdominal belt, an old 22 caliber pistol, two boxes of cartridge, and some receipts from a drugstore but no will. Now, someone else who felt she was in line for the fortune then proposed another possibility, that when Carthage Churchville had witnessed the will and saw how little she was to receive, she was furious. Her claim was backed by a southern white lawyer named Clarence E. Hall, who explained, It is Negro psychology thus to dispose of a paper which did not please Carthage Churchville. I come from the South, and I know how the Negro mind works. Carthage was angry at the contents of that will, and she hid it in the one place she felt it would never be discovered. In other words, Carthage had nursed a grudge for many years, and while Henrietta's body was laid out in the parlor, she had taken the will and slipped it into the coffin with her dead mistress. And of course, Carthage was no longer around to answer this heinous accusation. Word got out into the newspapers, and there was an uproar. In March of 1936, four mausoleums were defiled at Laurel Hill, including that of Dr. Elwood Kirby, whose body had been dragged from his final resting place and partially stripped by ghouls looking for valuables. The caretakers found him face down on the lawn when they reported to work the next morning. In 1891, Kirby had been included in the famous Aikens painting, The Agnew Clinic. He's the red-headed anesthetist in the foreground. To prevent something similar from happening to Henrietta, the estate hired armed guards to give 24-hour coverage to Plot 320 in Section X. It seemed there was only one thing to do. The special master asked the orphan's court for permission to exhume the casket open it, and examine it for a will. After all, those 24-hour guards were costing money, and they were whittling away at the Garrett snuff fortune. Laurel Hill's preparations began on 25 October 1937, with the removal of the headstones and footstones and the sod. The cemetery erected a large tent over the Schaefer family plot, and the next day, 22 carefully selected witnesses were present when groundkeepers dug into Henrietta's not-yet-final-resting-place. They shoveled the upturned earth onto the plot of the still very accommodating and loving Walter Garrett. And just to be sure there was no funny business, a cameraman chosen by the master filmed the exhumation. The casket reached the surface, the lid was pried off, 
and a gloved undertaker's hand felt around inside the casket, every last inch of it. He found nothing. The lid was replaced, and Henrietta was again lowered to what I hope is now her final resting place. The master was now convinced there was no will. Now, this story is far from over, but I'm going to condense the rest of it as much as possible. Remember that Henrietta's maiden name was Schaefer, spelled S-C-H-A-E-F-F-E-R. As I found out a couple of years ago while I was researching two 19th century baseball players, Zachary Taylor Schaefer and George Orator Schaefer, spelled S-H-A-F-E-R, there are at least eight different ways to spell the name Schaefer. And people with any and all variants of the name came crawling out of the woodwork, claiming to be long-lost relatives. Counterfeit pages were inserted into German family Bibles, trying to prove blood relationship. A man named Isaac Newton Schaefer, S-H-E-A-F-F-E-R, claimed to be Henrietta's long-lost illegitimate son, whom she had delivered before marrying Walter and then gave away to a friend who was also conveniently named Schaefer, but spelled differently. Isaac Newton later spent time in jail for his fraud. A housewife from Nebraska furnished documents purporting to show that Henrietta was really an Irish girl from County Carlow, daughter of her uncle. A southern dirt farmer testified she was born right down in Russell County, Virginia, sir. Even the Nazis got into the act in 1939. They claimed that since her grandfather had been mayor of a German village, Henrietta's fortune should go to the Third Reich. In Ulm, Germany, May 1935, 29-year-old Ludwig Schaefer, yet another spelling, S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R, was angered when his family would not cover his expenses to sail to America and claim the Garrett fortune. He shot and wounded his uncle and his foster father and the foster father's wife. And when his foster father's wife died 10 days later, Ludwig Schaefer went into the nearby woods and killed himself. The archives of the Schaefer-Garrett plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery contain four manila file folders of newspaper articles, letters, and other ephemera related to Henrietta and Walter. It took me more than three hours to sift through what, I didn't measure it, I would estimate it to be eight inches of papers. At least 30 of the letters in the files request the exact wording on the tombstone of Henrietta's father. Now, my favorite letter in the file, it's dated January 25th, 1944. It's addressed to the superintendent of Laurel Hill Cemetery. Dear sir... I, quote, Stella J. Platt, unquote, who represent and, and, there was no spell check back then, and, and, have power of attorney for the real claimant heirs and clamients, which I suppose is supposed to be claimants, demand that all fake tombstones on said lot 320, section X, be removed, quote, before I start court proceedings to sue Cemetery Association, end quote. I have made various investigations of fake record of Marcellus and Starr and can prove by Congressional Library, Washington, D.C., and other sources of record. I demand immediate action. 
Stella J. Platt, 2048 Locust, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Believe it or not, by the time that the estate was settled in the 1950s, more than 20 years after Henrietta's death, 600 Philadelphia lawyers, 900 members of the bar from other parts of the United States, and 750 lawyers from foreign countries represented the, wait for it, 26,000 people who tried to claim a piece of the vast Garrett Snuff fortune. Some sources say the number was as high as 40,000. The master had found two strong claimants who appeared to be Henrietta's first cousins, Johann Peter Christian Schaefer, an ex-mayor of Badenauheim, Germany, and Henry A. Kretschmar, Henrietta's mother was a Kretschmar, an aged bachelor from St. Louis who had just spent five years in jail for second-degree murder. And then in 1949, the U.S. government got into the act, and they backed up the petition of Johann Schaefer. He had recently died in 1946 at 92, and since Johann had been a German citizen and we had been at war with Germany, the fortune government lawyers maintained should be considered spoils of war, and they took half of the money. A period Somewhere in the archives of Philadelphia courts are more than 500,000 typewritten pages covering case number 2552, the Garrett case, and they fill 323 volumes. There were also 71 volumes of exhibits, reports, and adjudications. The publishing bill alone was more than $14,000. As a final step, as a final insult, Estate administrators sent workmen into the South 9th Street houses with crowbars, hammers, and saws. They methodically smashed all the furniture that Walter Garrett had purchased for his beloved Henrietta. The twin-carved bureaus, a walnut writing desk, a massive sideboard, velvet settees, Henrietta's beloved Rosewood Square piano, and the six pendulum clocks. Seven truckloads of splinters were taken to a secret lot and burned. Authorities reasoned that if any of the furniture had fallen into unscrupulous hands, someone might find a long-lost will that had been secreted there. Now jump ahead, 1994. Jay Schwartz of the Philadelphia-based Secret Cinema Film Society was looking for film treasures at flea markets, as he often did. He was in Lambertville, and he purchased a canister of 16-millimeter film that was simply labeled Minnick, M-I-N-N-I-C-K, and spliced into this 13-minute silent black-and-white movie clip that looked like someone's family vacation, but there was a segment of what appeared to be a burial at Laurel Hill Cemetery. The initial shot is a car driving through the main gate, where the name is clearly visible. It was an odd burial, he thought, though, as there were police officers and men in dark suits taking notes, and lots of the people were smiling. Now, he was preparing to show this film, and it was going to be backed by a group of musicians. It's for a show that he did called Other People's Movies in Concert. One of the musicians suggested that what they were seeing was not a burial, but an exhumation. Schwartz investigated. He found that Thomas Minnick, 
was Deputy Attorney General representing the state's interest in the Garrett case. He was one of the people approved to be at Henrietta's exhumation, and he was apparently the person who hired the cinematographer. Schwartz contacted Laurel Hill, who confirmed what was going on, and he showed the film to the public at the cemetery in July of 2012, on Friday the 13th. It was the lead-in to the main feature that night, what some people have called the worst movie ever made, Plan 9 from Outer Space. And about a thousand people showed up. When I emailed Jay for confirmation, he said, I will show it again someday, but he has no plan of displaying it again anytime soon. For now, we can let Henrietta and her beloved Walter rest in peace at Laurel Hill East. for some rather contemporary Sunday morning nostalgia for the mid-December episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories. I'm going to talk about Philadelphia's own Liberace, Larry Ferrari, the man with the golden fingers and the constant smile, who spent almost 45 years of Sunday mornings entertaining thousands of people on his mighty Hammond organ. Ferrari was universally loved all through the Delaware Valley. He is interred with his mother at Laurel Hill West. The January episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, will be part three of Fathers of American Medicine. Many biographies and more about Dr. George McClellan, father of a Civil War general and founder of Jefferson Medical College. Sam Hamill, who's considered the father of neonatal research, in the United States, and William Pancoast, the first physician to perform artificial insemination in the United States, but under very unusual circumstances. Look for it on January 1st, 2023. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny, Receptive buses are 1 and 61. Admission is always free, as is parking at the lot across the street, although spaces are very limited. And there's an app that you can download for a self-guided tour through its 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking at both the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the Scepter Regional Rail to Maniunk 
or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, come up Writers Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. There is a QR code on the dog waste posts at both the Barmouth entrance and the Pencoid entrance. Scan them and they will lead you directly to a 40 to 45 minute audio tour that talks about the people interred along the route through the cemetery. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. from now through March. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are open for frequent historic tours. And we still have occasional pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at laurelhillphl.com. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. You can also follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook. Sign up for our mailing list using the link in the show description. And once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill. and You'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits. And at least two annual members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrell. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, and Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, are researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at joe at joelex.net. Stick around for the references that I used on this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Okay, the article that gives you the most information about cigar manufacturing in the United States, it's a long one. It's called What This Country Needs is a Good Five-Cent Cigar. The author is Patricia A. Cooper. That's from Technology and Culture, Volume 29, Number 4, Special Issue, Labor History and the History of Technology, dated October 1988, pages 779 to 807. That was published by the Johns Hopkins University Press and the Society for the History of Technology. That's where I got most of the statistical information that I gave you. Articles on Juan Portuando all came from newspapers. I couldn't really find much more on him except uh, what was in the newspaper and especially with his obituary. The story about his father being assassinated in Cuba was a full-page story in the newspapers. The Eisenlohr brothers, mostly again from newspaper articles, although the University of Pennsylvania website 
gave me information about the Eyes of the Lower Mansion. And Rachel Walgamuth, the historian at Laurel Hill West, gave me some information about the mausoleum itself. When Otto died in 1914, there was a one-page obituary in the magazine The Tobacco World that I got a little bit of information from also. The story of the disaster at Caleb Milne's building on Washington Avenue all came from newspapers. Researcher and historian Bob McNulty also published something about this on his Facebook page. It's called Philadelphia Stories by Bob McNulty, and it was dated October 8th, 2018. I took some information from that, but I did a lot of research on my own also. If you're interested in the names of the girls who were killed and the notary publics who were finally arrested, you can find them in Bob's story. It's quite a bit more detailed than what I told you. For Henrietta Garrett, there is a full book about this. It's called The Garrett Snuff Fortune. It was written by C.A. Weslager, W-E-S-L-A-G-E-R. A true account of a $20 million fortune originating on Delaware's Red Clay Creek. That was copyright 1965, and I don't see a publisher on the uh, credits page. Other than that, almost everything is out of the newspapers. There were so many newspaper articles about the Garrett Snuff fortune, starting in, well, briefly in 1931, but then in 1935, these stories exploded, and 1937 was the peak year. That's the year they exhumed Henrietta. But I can find newspaper articles going all the way up to 1953 when the final heirs were named and the money was distributed. There was a nice summary article in the old Coronet magazine. Remember Coronet magazine? October 1955. It was written by John Tolan and it's on pages 165 to 169. There was another article in the Philadelphia Daily News from 14 April 1975, page 65. That's a very brief summary of the whole Garrett case. I learned about the film, of course, from the people at Laurel Hill Cemetery, but I found an article by Ronnie Polonetsky from the Philadelphia Daily News, dated 10 July 2012, that talked about Jay Swartz's discovery of the movie and how the movie was shown at Laurel Hill Cemetery. I emailed Jay and he responded very quickly and he cleaned up a couple of details that I had that were incorrect. I hope he lets me know the next time he shows the movie of the exhumation. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving if you haven't been through it already. If not, I will see you in the middle of December with our next Biographical Bites from Bala. Stay safe, stay well.